This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Alan Parker said, sometimes... With the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is writer-director Sheila McLeod. Hello. Hello, Stuart. And I, I, I'm very well, thank you. And I, I, I believe we're, we're together, no thanks to a lightning storm that nearly took out all the communications in your location. Well, it kind of did take out all the communications. I've never seen anything. I was standing in the kitchen. Um, my nephew was in the living room looking out of the window when it happened. Mm. And I, my husband was actually in the bathroom. <laughs> and uh, too much information. But um, And this lightning bolt literally touched the ground about, I don't know, it seemed like three inches away, but it was probably about four feet away. And it frazzled our communications. So yeah, we just got back up and running. Is, yeah, there, and is, the is North- there scorch marks where the, the lightning bolt hit? Do you know what? I think there may be because we got we got the new guy and he said, Oh the the um the modem has been fritzed and we got a new modem today and I said to my Matt, my cousin, if we my nephew, if we go outside and climb up a ladder I bet that's where the bolt hit. And he said, yeah, probably right. He, I mean, the noise, uh, the whole house literally didn't just, sh- it, it literally was like, I've been in an earthquake once hmm. and it was like that. The noise was deafening. It was incredible. Wowzer. Well, look, the yeah. listener, listener will be glad to know we've not come to talk about weather patterns in Britain. Um, we're going to talk about your feature <laughs> debut as a writer-director, yeah? Yep. Astronaut, yeah. which is will premiering at Edinburgh Film Festival, I believe. Yes. Do yes. you wanna do you wanna give details as to when that is? Yeah, so it starts um Edinburgh Film Festival starts next Wednesday the nineteenth, I think. We have our world premiere on Saturday the twenty second mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. six PM at the Film House One. There are tickets left. Um it's selling out, so I think. Uh, Richard Dreyfus is coming and I will be there on stage with Richard afterwards for a fun Q&A and God knows what we'll be talking about. But knowing Richard, he is always very, very interesting. So it should be fun. And I'd love if you guys, anybody out there wants to come along, 
there are tickets available on the Edinburgh Film Festival. Then we have a second screening on Monday, the 24th at six o'clock. And that's at the, I think it's the Omni or something like that, but it's on the um, Edinburgh International Film Festival website. So it will be great to see anybody there, really. Cool. Yeah, excited. Well, look, I think we should tell them then what maybe give us a short synopsis as to what the film's about that they would be seeing if they could be in Edinburgh. Yeah. <laughs> well, Astronaut is about um, an old man who enters a competition to win a trip to space. And along the way, he battles his ill health, his dysfunctional family, um, the so-called space experts and his own self-doubt to be in with a chance to win the golden ticket for a trip of a lifetime. That's the, that's the film. That sounds about right. That sounds about right from what I saw. Um, so you wrote and directed it. And yeah. I think people who, who may, who may know you already will know you as an actor first and yeah. foremost. Yeah. Um, so as, as an actor who's, who's turned their hand to writing and directing, what, what for you were the kind of, was, was, was writing and directing always part of the plan or was being an actor seeing directors on set an inspiration for you to try your hand at it as well? It's a good question. Um, Stuart, it's a good question. No, it's really funny because when I, I was always a bit of a, I wasn't a method actor, but I was always an actor that would practice like hell to get the role right and then immerse myself in the moment when we were shooting um, and then lark about with the cast and crew, of course, acting like a five-year-old, which is possibly one of the reasons I became an actor, because mm -hmm. you can actually get to act like a five-year-old for the rest of your life. And um, it wasn't that really wasn't the trigger. I mean, I, I think I was influenced by a lot of directors I worked with. Mm -hmm. um, and I, liked the, I like I don't like um, shouty, aggressive, arrogant directors. I never have. I like the calm, uh, quiet and fun, patient ones because you learn a lot more as an actor from them. And I think the crew um, respect you in a funny way more, too. So that wasn't really. But but I think it was seeing great movies in 2001. I mean, I'm quite old, but. 2001, my dad took me to see, I literally must have been, I hate to say it's eight, seven, I can't remember how old I was when it came out, but he took me to see this film. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting there and just being transported into another world. And so the trigger really was, I'd always been writing a bit and I directed a cat commercial when I was, I don't know, early 30s. And then when I was doing peak practice for 10 years, I talked very um, uh, carefully to the directors about how what their journey had been. And then I was doing Holby City and I was already, I had enrolled myself into um, university because I'd never done a degree. And I was doing film and writing, creative writing, which of course is script writing as well as all the other disciplines, poetry yeah. and all that. And I found that there was this sort of organic process that when I was writing and I had been right, I had written a couple of shorts already. So I clearly was being compelled to make films. Mm -hmm. But I was writing. I have I'm quite I'm quite dyslexic and I guess I'm quite visual. So I when I write, the pictures guide me. The pictures are in my head and, and as well as the characters. And um, and that was actually 
really how I really got the bit between my teeth because I loved it. I loved the process of sitting down, be guide, being guided by my teachers at Kingston University who were great and creating a story that was in eventually. So what I'd wrote is I wrote a lot of short stories and then I just started, I gave up, abandoned the prose writing and just concentrated on crafting, you know, my scripts and my mm. screenwriting. So that was really how it started. And then, of course, when you've written something, and, and also when I used to, as an actor, read scripts that were being sent to me, or more often I was always auditioning. I was a jobbing actor, really, so I always generally had to audition for stuff. You get this picture in your head of the character and how she walks, she talks, um, you know, she she feels, she, and you get this kind of really weird visual sense and, and you know, intrinsic sense of who she really is and that also guided me and then of course once I'd written um I kept writing shorts and I'd written um astronaut was originally called the competition mm-hmm. and I'll tell you why it got changed to astronaut but but that was really so I made a little teaser for it and I thought this has got legs I, I loved it and I wouldn't give up on it and that's kind of the beginning of the journey for me to make the first feature film. So then, if in that that initial one, the competition that became Astronaut, what was what for you in that idea was was where you you got inspiration to to obviously go as far as you have with it. Yeah. Where, where did that well, inspiration start? Well, it, my mum, my mum was um, died in a nursing home, and uh, I I love my mum, and you know. In the end, we moved. I'm very, I've got a very close family, but they're in, most of them are two of them are in Canada. My baby brother's here. Mm-hmm. In the end, we moved to, to this. I moved to this amazing nursing home, and um, it was like a big old grand old house. And uh, in the in the gardens, in the nursing home gardens, there was this old guy uh, in a wheelchair who was always staring up at the sky and he would literally never come in i mean it could be pouring down with rain or blistering sunshine and he'd be there looking at the sky and the nurses would drag him in at the end of the day as, as night fell and and one day i just went and sat next to him and i said to him what is it that you're looking for up there and he said another go and um that kind of wow. really touched my heart a bit because you know, my mum was dying and I, I hadn't really accepted the fact that my mum was dying. And a lot of other people were in the nursing home, too. In fact, most of them were were on their on their last journey and on, on Earth. And it, it I, I've always been passionate about the elderly not being neglected in society. I know I had to fight to get my mum a great nursing home. Mm. Um, and I think the elderly are neglected and overlooked. And it's bloody tough when you get older and you haven't got much money. Um, we were lucky because my mum had a little, she'd moved to a little bungalow house and we were selling in the process of selling that. But for other people, you know, it's tough. And I think old people should have a voice, whether they're 105 or, you know, they're as important as a young voice. I mean, everybody should be heard and seen. And and I really, and I kind of got pissed off about that. And I thought, this is, this is going to be, this is going to be a story about this old man and I wrote it really for my mum, for this old man. Hmm. But I also wrote it for my dad, my father, who died when I was, um, he was 61. So it was kind of because my dad always wanted to go to space. And I think he was instrumental in triggering in me this love 
of what's beyond and what's out there and this curiosity and that's why I love science fiction so I just love I I go up like a shot really (laughs) yeah I mean I'm really claustrophobic don't laugh and I I'm a a bit asthmatic so 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 I but I still go up if somebody said you want to go up for a couple of weeks I go hell yeah I'd uh, take lots of tranquilizers and go up yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, that would that would be um, what's the what's the acronym? YOLO. You only live once, don't you? So I suppose yeah. if that came up, then why would you miss it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, it's 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 interesting, sort of the way you you kind of you've, you've you've drawn a picture there of taking inspiration from a very personal side of your life and also observing life at the same time in terms of your your parents and other people. You know, the broader the broader idea of. Um, older people um and it comes across quite strongly in 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 some of the 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 sort of i guess more nuanced parts of it which are not you know not the bits that in the film that are not directly about sort of uh angus's personal journey but just that observation of there are older people in this retirement home where angus ends up that they've got a personality they're not just people to be put to bed and fed and watered and put to bed and fed and watered which i think was a I would kind of it was I don't, I don't know how conscious you was of that of that point that you were making in the film. Yeah, no, I was very aware of that. I wanted that to be I mean I was so lucky and so well served by these brilliant actors mm. and uh and I also wanted um actors of a certain generation. I didn't want you know young people pretending to be old. I thought no, I mean I don't know if I'm allowed to square but swear on this podcast I won't. Okay. Okay, well, I was, I thought bugger it. I'm not having it. You know, um and there are so many great actors out there in their 80s. And it it was a privilege to work with them. And they all knew what they were doing. I mean, Graham Greene's one of the greatest actors I've ever worked with. And they got and what was nice is they all responded to the script really well. I didn't have to kind of convince anybody to do it or, you know, I, I think the most convincing I had to do was, look, I'm a first time feature film director. Have faith in me. Hmm. But I didn't have anybody worried about the script, which was which was really lovely. And they all just got it. You know, they got there were moments I said, look, I think these moments alone are important. Let's observe you know, you and I didn't also want to make it a gloom and doom story. It's quite a it's a fairy tale in a funny way. Mm. Um, and I wanted that kind of touch of element of magic and hope and slightly insane quality about it, because I, I extrapolated from many things that had happened to that I'd witnessed in the nursing home with my mum when my mum was in. And and that well, when you, I don't want to ruin the film for anybody who hasn't seen it, but there's a scene when one of the leading characters, Molly, the daughter, goes to talk to the nursing home manager, Liz, played by the great Mimi Kuzik, and uh, great actress Mimi Kuzik, and uh, that was me. I actually had played that scene for real. And because when you when you enter a nursing home and you're committing somebody to a nursing home, there are all these kind of different bands of care. And there are spreadsheets and flip charts and, you know, wheels. And, and I being dyslexic, I don't do really well with um, pie charts and stuff like that. And I just I, it always when I think back um, about what I was doing, committing my mom to a nursing home, it's a really terribly sad moment. But I wanted to find some humor in it, too, because and so, um, yeah, hopefully it comes across. Yeah, no, because because in a sense, it's that it's 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 the hope. It's in life, you know, in life, I suppose it's the it's the hope what kills us all all the time. But then there's yeah. there's some realization that older people 
I've stopped hoping for something, you know, in a sense, yeah. I, and this is going to sound like a weird parallel, but I remember my parents taking me to Halls of Residence for university. Yeah. And obviously that's a big moment for a parent, isn't it? As you probably, yeah. you've gone through yourself, like you, you, you're, you're saying, there you go, off you go, here's your future. But that's a hopeful moment, isn't it? There's like, what, what can happen next? Whereas a retirement home is like, here's the closing chapter. Yeah, it is totally the closing chapter. Yeah. And then you um, couple that with the the idea of a cold business conversation about what what level of service or what treatment or whatever, and you're kind of thinking, yeah, it's um, it 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 covers a lot of bases. That it's it's kind of it's very poignant and 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 you know quite you know quite the observation as to you know what on one side of it it's a business deal going on, on the other side of it it's a big wrenching <laughs> moment, isn't it? It's both those things. It's yeah. a massive now. Just can I just rewind a second though in the process because I think if you if you were sort of you know learning your craft as it were through short story prose and then writing and developing these short films you made, one of which was your kind of the start of a ten on this the, the competition. Um, what for you were the big storytelling challenges getting the astronaut to a feature length script for you as you were developing it? Oh, plot. It's always for me, bloody plot. Um, you know, it's, I, I found, I found, and I, I kept going, I kept, you know, of course, you know, character, character is plot really, isn't it? And mm. so if you push the characters, the plot kind of reveals itself. And, and that's one of the, you know, great writing things I was told and taught endlessly. Um, so I, I mean, I'm probably never going to be, um, a crime writer, but, but I, I think it's true. I think that I, 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 it's what happens next. That's quite hard. Mm. And that was for me because I knew where I knew the beginning, I knew the middle and I knew the end. Almost the moment I sat down and I met that old man and I thought my mum died and I thought I'm going to write the story. So I knew what was going to happen, but it's the bits in between that are, how's it going to happen? How is this going to, what could he do? And it's all that stuff. And you know what it comes down to research so what I did is I, I, I work, I love collaborating with people and I dragged this um, scientist guy I know in that I had met a couple of times. He now lives in Malaysia and he and I literally brainstormed for months and months about what Angus could do. And I, I had a couple of experiences um, and I said, I think he's a civil engineer. And so we started spitballing about, you know, what, what could, what's the worst that could happen? Could a Richard Branson character in haste suddenly make a terrible mistake and I, the answer kept coming back and I called up big road companies and they, I spoke to Tarmac and they went well you know it, it's unlikely but it does happen so I just extrapolated from that and, I, and then gradually as I kept pushing down on Angus and finding out what he wanted and what he needed mm. um, and what he really needs is 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 to still be valid and to, to achieve his dream. But he also, along the way, meets friends and his family unite and um, and they let him go, really. So it was sort of that. And then, again, it's just draft after draft after draft after draft. And something happens and you just stare at the computer or you stare at the script and you think, oh, I know what I know that's missing. That beats missing. Oh yeah, that's that should follow. All oh, right, and then it, it it it's sort of like you get chinks of of what it should be. And I tried to obviously um, plot as much as I could. So I did a kind of out rough outline, and yeah. I did a scenario, 
the, I did the short synopsis. But what I find even now, because I'm writing, I've just finished a draft of my next one, Nexus, which is a bigger beast. Mm. And I, I outlined it and I wrote the short story. But in the end, until you, well, for me, because I'm, I, I've, well, I've been writing for many years now. I'm still fairly new at this. And, and for me, until I get those characters on the page, talking to each other, doing stuff, they have to kind of live for a bit on the page and then, that you can hear their voices in your head and then the journey begins with them and they take shape on the page. So, and then my teacher at Kingston, I had to read a lot of, um, you know, about other writers and yeah. I, I read something in Parry Match, um, about Graham Greene, you know, the famous writer, novelist Graham Greene. Mm -hmm. And he said something, I've never forgotten it. And he said, so any writer out there who's struggling with, oh, my God, I've got to sit down and map this whole story out before I even know what the story is. Graham Greene said minor characters are photographs, but great characters evolve on the page. And I just I've never got reading that. And I thought, OK, all right, because you can get lost. You go down this labyrinth of, oh, God, I've got a plot. I've got a plot. Everything I've got. A plot every single beat that happens because you know I did the Robert McGee story thing and I and he's a brilliant I mean Robert McGee is so worth doing but at the end we are all different kind of writers and and I I think if you'd sit down and you let your imagination just go then some really interesting stuff happens I was going to say because I was listening to Charlie Brooker on a podcast just this morning actually and he was talking about writing the Black Mirror series and yeah. it, it's something I never crossed, I never thought about before. But he talks about the. He, he always saw it as kind of kooky when he heard writers say, "Well, the character took me here," and he and he mm. said he used to think, "Are they mad?" And mm. he said, and he was doing like the second or third series, and he said he found himself for the first time wanting to know what happens next to his character in the sense of it wasn't just about knowing what to write. It was actually the character had got to a certain point. And was doing something, and, and what he thought was the end, instinctively he knew wasn't, and he was like, "I need to know what happens next." And I'm now I'm following a character, so that's a long way for me of saying. So with Angus's character, where where did you get led that you weren't expecting to when you were writing the when you when once you began to own Angus in the writing? He was he. Uh, there were so many scenes um, that were cut, and you know we had this whole great because originally I was imagining we were going to shoot it in England because I'm dual nationality. Mm. And there were scenes I wrote in Hyde Park and there was a caper aspect and the, and the son-in-law and the um, Angus get together slightly earlier in the script and they bribe this con guy to get them false documents. And it was a whole, and there was a car chase. <laughs> and actually, oh yeah, it was a much bigger, bigger film. But the problem is it's eventually you have to keep, when you get all those, so you write all that stuff. And then you go in with a kind of microscope and you say, this is a big soup and I've got to condense this down into a really, really thick soup and nothing that we could get rid of can stay in. So anything we found was not necessary. We just binned. And so I suppose it lost this final um, film, lost a little bit of the caper aspect because it was a kind of caper movie to begin with um and 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 it lost a little bit of that but on the other hand i decided to develop the nursing home stuff much more and um the original draft it, he really kind of only went into the nursing home towards the end oh, and okay. i thought no 
yeah, this isn't right. I think this nursing home stuff. And people who read the draft after draft said, we really love the nursing. We love all the characters. Um, and, and I shook my head and said, oh, but yeah, but character's expensive. This is an independent movie. And they said, don't write like that. Just keep writing the characters. And that's how that sort of, that the, I ended up with this kind of structure. Brilliant. Now, the, the elephant in the room, and you've already mentioned his name, is Mr. Close Encounters, Richard Dreyfus as the lead role. Um, how, how did you secure Richard Dreyfus' services in your debut feature film? And how was he to direct? Um, it was a very good question because I've got one of the best agents in the world in Canada, Jennifer Goldhar, characters. Mm-hmm. And when we, we won something in Berlin, we won this fantastic, um, Jets competition, which is a pitching competition and you pitch up against other nations like we picked up against Germany. And we were kind of the underdogs because, um, my producer, Jess is 28, 29 now, and she lo- literally looks like my great grandchild. She literally looks so young. So we were like the odd couple, and everybody, and Jess is a really brilliant, brilliant producer. And we were rehearsing our pitch, and there were like 200 people in the room, and um, wow. we were being judged, and I, we were very nervous. Like and so we went in with the It was. It was, yeah. And uh, we went in and we were shaking in our boots. And all we had was, were really, a pic- we had a picture and our words. And I had to tell the story on stage and she had to talk about the finance plan and the structure. And everybody else had had, you know, great big flashing, you know, <laughs> you, you know, diagrams in the back and, you know, digits and budgets. And it, it was quite busy. And um, I'm very pleased to say that we won for Canada and so when I knew that we'd won that and then the brilliant Dan Lyon of Telefilm who was endlessly supportive and met us many times to talk about the project um because he's that he's that he really does so Telefilm for for a UK audience is what equivalent like the BBC or or it's the Canadian sort of version of um yeah maybe it's not BBC but it's no it's more like I suppose um, the BFI or something like that. Got it's you. it's it's a, a government-run um, big um, organisation that uh, fund feature films. Which is cool. Which, which international film festivals is really handy to have their support, isn't yeah. it? In terms of independent filmmakers, that kind yeah, of thing. Amazing. So anyway, then I went. We went. Oh my God, who are we going to get to play Angus? And so I went to talk to Jennifer Goldhart with Jessica, mm-hmm. the producer, and we sat down. And Jennifer had always been very supportive of the script. She loved it. And she'd been reading numerous drafts. I mean, poor thing, I had sent her about four billion drafts over the years I've been writing it. And she said, have you thought of Richard Dreyfuss? And I, Dreyfuss, and I said, oh, he'd never do it. He'd never do it. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a, you know, I'm a complete unknown director. I, I just won't do it, won't do it. She said, well, I know his manager, so let me try and get the script to his manager, at least for his manager to read and his agent to read. And then it all went quiet and we went wandering off thinking, well, I'll never get him. Um, and, um, you know, blow me down. His manager wrote to Jessica and said, cute script. I'll send it to Richard. And then that was the beginning of the journey. And then we had this big Skype with Richard. We were both very, very nervous. Okay. And, uh, and we had the Skype and Richard was shooting a, a big old movie down in New Orleans. We were both up in Toronto. It was midnight. I, you know, had a glass of wine to calm me down and, you know, and, and <laughs> it was just funny and charming and interested. And 
electric to talk to. And also he loved all my um, favorite sci-fi novel, novel um, novels and um, writers. So John Wyndham and, uh, you know, um, many, many others. So we got on well and he liked the script very much. And his wife really liked the script. And she, Stella Dreyfus was incredibly helpful too, because she, she, I think, really was keen for him to do it. And then we had another couple of Skype calls and he didn't commit quite yet. And then he, he was suddenly in and that was it. And we were, we were off. I was actually in the bath in my home in England because I live in England. Mm. And, um, I, it was about 1130 at night and Jess just texted me and said, get on a plane. We're greenlit. And I went, shit. Oh my God. And that was it. We, we were off. And so I came over and we went to Canada and we Toronto and we did all the auditions for the other roles. And, um, yeah, it was it was fantastic, it was a fantastic experience. And working with Richard, I I I can't tell you how collaborative he is, and how warm he is as a human being. I mean, he has that warmth on screen, and that warmth is within him. So he's not arsy or or um, arrogant at all. He's funny and collaborative, and he monkeys around with the crew and the actors. He loves to giggle and laugh. And he's a trooper, really. Now, I've had I've had um, many I've had many um, many directors on the podcast before, and one of the, one of the things I hear a lot is sort of ninety percent of directing is in the casting. Now, obviously, you come from an acting background. Um, do, do you do you believe that wholeheartedly? And um, how and what do you, what do you bring to the directing that you that you take directly from your experience of being the actor talking to a director? Well, I think I was very lucky that I was working with great actors, and we had a, a young actor who's Richie Lawrence, who plays the son um, of um, the parents of. Mm. Um, um, I suppose being an actor, I know how I like to be drawn. And I know how I like to be talked to by a director. Right. And the best directors, as I've said, are the ones are who are quiet and interested and listen. And really, you're just a kind of a vehicle by which they can channel your their ideas. And and you're there maybe to guide them a little. But you know, guiding a rich um, rich Dreyfus, it's 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 a very collaborative thing. So. So I was always on the floor with them um, and I would never hopefully ever direct from behind the, the scene, you know, by behind the, um, the screen because it's just not the same. So I think that I guess my experience as an actor was helpful because I knew how I like to be directed. I guess that was that was a, a plus. Um, they were always full of ideas to these actors. They, you know, they're actors that are. Uh, uh, prepared to fail if they to try something out mm. and uh, as a director I hope I was always so I would love that I would love them experimenting and something worked it didn't and they change it then we go backwards and forwards and it it, it was a I can't really say it was funny because it was almost like I was just one of the other actors at, but then you'd stand behind the camera and you'd watch it and you could see instantly what wasn't quite working and it was very often tiny, you know, movement or something. Mm. Very often the performances were spot on, spot on. And, yeah. and in terms of, you know, obviously you've got, is it maybe, is it half a dozen short films you've got, you had in, 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 in the bank? I've done, I've done uh, 
two, what have I done? Three or four, I think, and I've done a couple of teasers as well. Okay. So, so with them in the back, in them in the bank, as it were, what lessons learned from making those were sort of invaluable to making your feature film? Um, preparation, I think. Um, and then I, I prepared as much as I could for Astronaut, but bear in mind that, you know, it was my first biggie behind the camera, so I was very... Um, I, I, I like working very closely with the DOP, with the sound guys, um, with the gaffer. You know, they, they were all highly um, talented. The DOP was a brilliant DOP. We talked very closely together. And I think that was all, uh, you know, a great um, – and doing the shorts, you sort of saw the – actually, it's funny. It's a good question because you sort of see what didn't work from some of the shorts um, mm. in, in my head, what I think, Oh, I might've done that differently. Not, in, not the end result, but just in approaching it. And I think also the nerves might've been 400 times worse. And they were pretty bad on the first day. Um, if I hadn't have done those shorts and, and, and vision, you know, this, uh, this dreaming big. So I think I see, I'm quite a visual, I hope I'm quite a visual person and seeing that the, the um, not the architecture, but seeing how a scene should work and mapping out what the actors' moves could be, because I knew we'd be pressed for time. Mm. So obviously, actors would dictate the move. But if we were, we've got a final scene. It was a very small space, and I literally acted out the the final scene many times in my hotel room, so that I just was thought, how's this going to work with five, six people in a very small space? How's this going to work? So I, I did it and I acted all the parts out and I thought, oh yeah, that will work. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> a sort of uh, a, a sane, a sane form of schizophrenia. <laughs> so you, you mentioned the, the, the cinematographer. Um, what, what, what in those conversations you were having? What were the sort of look and feel you were going for, and what were your kind of reference points to help sort of convey what you wanted it to look like in the in the in the finished film? Um. Well, we had so many references and they were from quite traditional older films. And I said, I think, I think there's a wholesome feel to this story. This is not a handheld, modern, um, you know, jarry, uh, shaky camera shot. This is not that film. This mm -hmm. film has got an old fashionedness to it without, without, I hope, feeling old fashioned, but there's a sort of, there's a sort of wholesomeness to this story. And originally I wrote it for, for late summer. So that, you know, I'm, I write, I love um, the environment. So my next one's all of, a lot about the environment. So, you know, crops were hanging. They were really, and of course we shot it in the winter and it was dumping down the snow. Um, so, you know, I had to change that sort of visual picture in my head. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, we used Field of Dreams, Cocoon, you know, E.T., just, just all those feels, feelings that, that evoke when you watch a movie like that. And then I talked a lot to Scott McClellan, who was our DOP, and we talked a lot about almost having a static camera for quite a lot of the film um, with just slight, slight moves, you know, slight pan in, slight, slight dolly and whatever. But but it, it so it wasn't it wasn't a heavily moving camera all the way through, I think. And that stillness, especially when Angus is is on his own in the room, really, I think, paid off. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not, um, I mean, I don't want to say it's not a filmmaker's film. I hope it is, but, but it's also, I really wanted to reach the people and I didn't want to clutter it up. Scott and I didn't want to clutter it up with too many fancy shots. 
Um, no, no, no. I mean, it's that idea of you, 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 you well, I, I mean, from what I watched, um, it's like, obviously, he's in his 80s, so therefore the action itself is never going to be rat-a-tat-tat. Yeah. So the, why, why would the camera? I mean, it would yeah. just, be, it'd just be out of sync with, with yeah. most of the people you're watching. And even though you've got, like, the young kid, you talk Rich, Richie Lawrence character, Barney, you, there's still, like, a... It, 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 it's not trying to run to the finish line, is it? The film, the film's making its way there, and we, you, you, you sort of go with the journey, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope, yeah. But I think it looks. Um, I think it, it, and in the end, it got. It, I mean, it was the right tone. I had that kind of tone in my head when I was mm. writing it from the very beginning. That was sort of in my head, and um, even though the kind of climate changed. <laughs> um, we got hit by a blizzard halfway through filming, so we had to reshoot a major sequence. Um, it, it, it was in that 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 kind of landscape of him going to the park and you know seeing ch- you know a kid play football, and that was all there. That kind of uh, how do you spend your day when you're you're nearly eighty? You know what do you do? Read the paper? You know, so all that sort of tonal stuff was there um, from the beginning, really. And, and and you mentioned this before we started recording, so I'd love to know what are the top tips for shooting in freezing temperature. Then, warm clothes. God almighty, I nearly froze to death. I mean, warm clothes. God, I can't tell you how cold it was. And I'd gone off to buy, and I'd spent a winter in Canada before I was in a big season at Stratford, Ontario, yeah. two plays. But this winter, it was fine. You know, I was I'd gone off to this shop and bought little boots and, you know, thought, yeah, I really look like a director in these clothes. That's great. And uh, then I got to the day, I don't know, it was about, say, 12 on a 25-day shoot, hmm. and it dropped to minus 20 plus wind chill overnight, which it does in Canada. It just does that. And I was halfway through the day and I, I got really kind of hypothermic. And I remember just I had three coats on, you know, mufflers, a hat, you know, 16 pairs of thermal underwear. And I got too cold. So I, the gaffer came up to me, Edwin, who was amazing, our, Edwin, our amazing gaffer. And he said, it's your shoes. And I said, look, he said, Look, I've got a spare pair of boots in my truck. So he bought me out these size 10 shoes. I'm a size six. Yeah. They were like just normal. They looked like kind of crappy old boots. I put them on and my feet were instantly warm. <laughs> and the crew, of course, were Canadian. And a lot of them had shot up in the Arctic, in the Arctic Circle. So they were there kitted up with this kind of serious snow kit. And because they're you're outside, of course, as a director or crew for hours and hours and hours. It's not like being an actor when you say, well, I'm a little chilly. I'm going to go back to my um, camper now, mm. my tan. My you, you, you're out there. And they and I was talking to them about shooting the Arctic Circle, and they said that there are companies in Canada that specifically buy for film crews because they and they buy on the level of where they're shooting. So when they shoot a movie in the Arctic Circle, what we were wearing wouldn't even have cut the mustard up there because it's minus 50 up there but i have never been so cold in my life and um you know just keeping keeping warm keeping lots of fluids keeping hot i mean i'm a massive tea drinker keeping keeping well fed it does does all help well one final question for you then um it being your first uh, your first feature shoot then uh, as as most of well all of us listening apart from those that work with you uh, won't have been on set. What what would be like a favourite memory from the shoot that you could share with us? Um, 
God, there are so many. I guess one of my favorite, it, it's a strange, well, there are two really. My favorite, one of my favorite moments was when the donkey, Patty, our, our donkey, one of our donkeys, the star of Patty, mm. arrived. And it was about two o'clock in the morning and we were shooting in the house, the family house, and we were preparing for the final scene. And we were shooting a scene with Richard and he was sitting in this kind of little crappy um, camp chair that he was sitting out in the garden. It was snowing. It was dumping down with snow. It was seriously like minus 25, two o'clock in the morning. And this we heard the word spread that the donkey had arrived for the final shot of the story. And um, suddenly everybody vanished except for Richard. And I'd run off to the front of the house to pet this donkey because <laughs> it's in England. There are millions of donkeys everywhere. But in, it was quite hard to find donkeys. Everybody said, you won't find it. Oh, they're really hard. and We have to ship them in. And, well, this wonderful woman arrived with these six, seven beautiful donkeys. And Patty was the fluffiest, softest, most well-looked-after donkey you have ever seen in your life. It was like a puppy. She was so fluffy and washed and groomed and everybody just was patting her the whole everybody was and I suddenly thought oh my god shit Richard so I ran back through the house back into the back of the garden and Richard was sitting and the garden was a really big garden yeah this kind of snowstorm just kind of humming to himself (laughs) (laughs) I thought that's the actor for you that's a star not one word of complaint about where everybody had gone and the second craziest moment was when scott mcclellan who's the dop who's got the the most even-tempered dop i've ever worked with at one point shouted to the donkey oh just look camera left (laughs) donkey was looking at the dog and the dog had fallen they'd both fallen in love with each other and it was a it was and i and we were all running around trying to get the donkey to look camera left and we had big bundles of hay and so we had all these crew and other actors from the family running back behind the camera going paddy look here look here it was just just insane it was insane well let's remind people then when when's the world premiere for astronaut uh the 22nd of june at 6 p.m at the edinburgh international film festival at film house one and you and richard dreyfus will be there for a q a following the screening yeah will be yeah we will be yeah well, look, thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Okay, lovely. Thanks for having me. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.